This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthVest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good afternoon, everybody. Today, it is July 19th. So far, the markets are up today. Yesterday, they were down. Apple had some news that uh, they're going to be cutting investment a little bit. Maybe not layoffs, but they're definitely going to cool down on hiring. A lot of earnings came out. Goldman Sachs had strong earnings reports. And then without the week, we'll have earnings reports, or we've received them from Johnson Johnson, Netflix, Lockheed Martin, Tesla, United Airlines, and and Verizon. Uh, with that, uh, Tim, let's kind of hop into what's moving and shaking right now. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it is all about earnings. Goldman put up a good number. But overall, the bank numbers are down like 30% year over year. Now, you know, they had some, you know, there's, there's base effects. We keep talking about base effects. And they had very strong earnings year over year because they were able to reverse uh, a lot of um, uh, money set aside for potential losses and then back reverse those again, then capital markets activity is a lot slower. Now, Goldman and Morgan are going to keep gaining share. So to, do, to the degree there's M&A and there's, there's capital markets activity, those two guys, along with JP Morgan, are, are going to win a lot of that. But o- across the board, the banks are weaker. And as you start to see the regionals uh, come in, uh, you'll start to see the effect of much lower um, or the expectation of much lower housing activity. So financial earnings have not been strong um and you know this is this is the time that we start to see uh the real guidance cuts um you know you're gonna see i keep saying that s p earnings uh estimates for 2022 peaked around 250. i think that number is going to come down closer to a 200 type number and again you look at a multiple on 200 at 3800 which is kind of where we keep bouncing around in this market that's 19 times is 19 times on a uh maybe structural rising interest rate environment particularly attractive this strike me as terribly attractive I, I think the other most important data that we got this week was the nahb numbers the national association of home builders that was terrible when I mean, you're really starting to see traffic uh and sentiment for the builders fall off a cliff and they've got too much inventory uh they're already um starting to lower prices you're gonna see them lower prices more uh, I think Ivy Zellman is the best analyst in this space, uh, and she's super bearish. And, you know, you look at uh, rising interest rates, you know, a doubling of your cost of capital at a time when affordability is as bad as it was in 2007. How could anybody think that housing prices don't need to start to come down? Uh, and then, you know, again, you know, you had a little bit of an attempt at a rally yesterday. We failed at 10:30 this morning Eastern Time. You've got a little bit of a rally, but everybody keeps waiting for these this big base ripping counter trend rally. I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but man, they've been pretty anemic these counter trend rallies so far. Uh, so we'll see. I, I think it gets harder and harder as numbers start coming in. And don't forget, retail earnings is off calendar. It's a month behind everybody else. So the tail of this earnings season is going to be in that discretionary retail area. And that's going to be the weakest, I would guess, the weakest part of all of earnings. So I don't know. I, I think there's going to be uh, no let up in sentiment. And I think that makes it tougher to get this big counter trend rip that people are looking for. 
Uh, CPI was yeah. obviously the big take last Wednesday. Yeah. Um, consumer price index went up 9.1% from a year ago. That was above Dow Jones' estimate of 88 uh, And then also, you know, there's larger expectations now that for July's hike, that might go up to a uh, 1%, right? 100 basis points. Uh, I mean, Canada recently did it. Um, there's been other countries that have gone up an entire clip as well. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on CPI right now and what does it mean for uh, Fed policy? Well, well, first to your last point about what's happening globally, one of the interesting things about the dollar strength, uh, the dollar wrecking ball, as people are calling it, is that you know, with the exception of Japan, where you could use a little inflation still after 20 years of or more of, of no inflation, is is you know, currencies are a relative game. If the dollar is going up, that means your currency and emerging markets is going down, uh, and you've got to defend your currency. So you so the, it it accelerates the global tightening cycle everywhere, uh, and that just makes it more and more likely that there there is a global uh, recession. Um, and then in Europe, you know, there's more kind of thinking that there could be 50 bips uh, of tightening. It probably will be 25 bips. And as as and we'll talk about it later, as much as Europe is absolutely screwed, they don't have the same core issue that we have, which is at risk of the wage price spiral. Uh, you know, you saw it in the Atlanta Fed wage tracker where wages are still pretty damn vertical. Uh, maybe the rate of change is slowing a little bit, but wages are still going up. Uh, and that is the core issue that the Fed has. So last week I was thinking it would be 100 bips, maybe it would be 75. It's anybody's guess, um, but it's it's going to be one or the other. And I think where I disagree with at least how the market is pricing things is the market is basically pricing in, the Fed keeps raising rates till the end of this year, then it slows down, then the economy slows down a ton, and then the Fed is cutting rates uh, in 2023. And my guess is that the OER component, the owner equivalent rent, and that the wage component is gonna make that too optimistic and that you won't get the degree of wage cuts, of, of, of wage relief that would allow the Fed to be cutting in 2023. So while the curve inversion is telling you that that's what's gonna happen, I wouldn't be surprised if you see uh, a different dynamic in time uh, where you, you even have a little bit of a bear steepener. So by bear steepener, I mean the inversion reverses and the 10-year yield actually goes higher than the near-term yield again. I think that would be a surprise to the markets, but uh, that you know that's our core thesis here, and I'm going to stick to it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, Kathy Wood you know, brought up the inverted yield curve. She we also brought up the dollars. Drew, we yeah. have to talk about Kathy Wood. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, Ark's always kind of, you know, the juggernaut. So. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what, whatever we feel about Kathy Wood, I, I guess her central take was if you look at the inverted yield curve and then you look at the dollar strength, the present inflation, uh, you have, you know, a lot of factors where we could argue that this is just a lagging indicator and we're already experiencing some deflation. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kathy Wood thinks the Fed's going too far. I love Kathy Wood and the Bitcoin people. I love the Bitcoin people blaming the Fed for the failure of Bitcoin. Like, are you effing <laughs> kidding me? Like, you guys are supposed to be the currency that is independent of, uh, you know, these evil global central bankers. But yeah. and look, Kathy Wood has zero, less than zero credibility to be talking about inflation. I mean, she was the one out there talking about uh, AI and ML and, you know, machine learning um, was going to create such massive productivity growth that we could generate double digit growth and not have an inflation worry. So I just, you know, I, I, I think she's part of the whole scam, the whole Tesla, Bitcoin, no credibility, overpromise to retail investors, suck retail in at the end. And it really is, you know, a, a scam is maybe a hard word, but I just, I, I think that what she does is right along with Jim Cramer is getting people to day trade. It, it's just unconscionable. Um, but whatever. Sorry for that rant. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 the Fed has got to do its job and we have runaway inflation with wages. And, you know, people make the fair point that, God, it sucks that labor has been getting the short end of the stick for 40 years. And as soon as you start getting a, a, a little uh, wage growth, the Fed's got to cut it off. But that's the reality of how economics work. You cannot allow um, to have this wage price spiral where wages go up, companies raise prices, that drives CPI further. So wages have to go up again. That just isn't going to work uh, in the kind of capitalist system that we have. So I, I just disagree with, with those who argue that the Fed, now I can agree that the Fed is too late. I could agree that the Fed overstimulated, but the idea that they don't have to do what they're doing right now, I just fundamentally disagree with. Yeah, I mean, more to your point, I guess you don't hear gold miners bitching um, about the Fed, you know, whenever <laughs> something's right. happening. Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, the only thing the gold miners bitch about is that everybody wants their money back, right? They like, right, right, yeah. <laughs> in the commodity space, and, you know, some people don't call gold a commodity, but, but in the commodity space and energy and in copper, like, investors want their money back, no extra capex. And, and gold miners, just that's, they don't give money back. That's not what they do. They, they want to go out, they want to buy, you know, more speculative assets. They want to drill more holes. Um, but no, they're not complaining about the Fed. Gauges of investor fear are very high, uh, whether we want to move at look at the move, um, but also like divergence in, um, you know, media chatter in terms of how much they're speaking about volatility uh, and just really a huge, huge um, spectrum of different ways to gauge investor fear, right? Uh, do you think this is kind of unique? I know that, you know, between 82 and 2007, people thought they lived in exciting times, but now it's known as the great moderation. Um, you know, is this is this different? Like, are we right to kind of characterize this as unprecedented? Despite all the market cycles we've had in history, you know, four Black Mondays and everything else. Yeah, I mean, we've had some unprecedented moves. I mean, this NAHB move that you had, I think, is the worst in history with the exception of, you know, the very beginning of the COVID crisis. Uh, the NFIB, uh, the, the small business monitor, has absolutely collapsed. It's down around the lows of the GFC and the lows of, of the COVID crisis. So, um, and, and I also do think that the dynamic where people are looking at, small business owners are looking at 
um, the pressure to hire workers uh, and and the inability to hire workers and the and the and the all of the different inflationary pressures on them. It's the first time that these business owners uh, in their lifetimes, maybe not their parents' lifetimes or whatever, that they've had to deal with these kind of pressures. So, yeah, there is some stuff that is uh, that is unprecedented and it's 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 different than than most guys running business or even running portfolios have ever had to deal with. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not surprising to me uh, that sentiment has fallen off a cliff uh, the way it has. You know, it's amazing. You hear Jane Fraser talk about, she was talking about a recession and she says, I don't see any indication that a recession, how could anybody with the NFIB numbers looking the way they look, you know, small businesses, the heartbeat of the country in, 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 in this kind of pessimistic mood and this kind of historical collapse come out and say, yeah, I don't see why we would have a, uh, have a recession. I mean, the leading indicators of sentiment indicators and the stock market itself are hitting you over the head that we're at risk of a recession. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it's not surprising to me um, that that business owners feel the pressure that they feel and it's and it's coming out in these sentiment data. Yeah, I mean, there's also good analysis right now that 6040 uh, might be kind of a better opportunity right now just with valuations getting crushed, you know, across the board, both with equities and with bonds, uh, another thing that you know some analysts are looking at is dividend aristocrat strategies. Barron's in particular says right now, if you're looking at companies with index and debt ratios that are below 50%, so not highly leveraged, uh, but those same companies that also have dividend payout ratios below 70%, um, that might be a good buying opportunity. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, look, now is not the time to be greedy. Now is not the time to say, oh, markets have come in 25% or whatever, so I'm going to I'm gonna really take a shot here because I do believe we are in a different world. Uh, and if we are in a world of secularly higher inflation, secularly higher uh, interest rates, uh, you don't want to own speculative businesses and you sure as hell don't want to own businesses with bad balance sheets. Uh, so the idea that people rotate into uh, big pharma uh, and uh, consumer staples or integrated energy or utilities, that makes all the sense in the world. That's what people ought to be doing. Uh, they, 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 they should be looking at principal protected products and they should be looking at areas where they uh, can at least assure themselves of some income without having to go out on the risk curve. Um, anything else we should be kind of talking about or thinking about this week, Tim? You know, I, I would just, you know, um, a couple of things, you know, China's comments around Pelosi is saying she's going to go to Taiwan and that alone uh, made China come out and talk about grave consequences. I just the whole deglobalization theme, I think, is only accelerating uh, when you look at the risk of supply chains in Europe. Look, if Putin cuts off the gas to Germany and it looks as if today he's cutting off the gas to Germany right now. And, you know, it's not 100% of their energy usage, it's not 100% of their natural gas. But one thing I think we've learned over the last year or two is that supply chains, and especially energy supply chains, don't get switched overnight. So if, if Germany is dealing with, you know, spiraling energy costs, 
What does that do to global supply chains? If China is saber rattling uh, over Taiwan, what does that do to global supply chains? Uh, I just think these are some tail risks um, around deglobalization that could really show their head uh, even faster than the market is anticipating. Uh, you know, you look what copper is doing. Copper is down 33%. They call it Dr. Copper because it's supposed to be a leading indicator and it is acting as a leading indicator. And the crazy thing to remember with copper is that is the decarbonization metal. That is the green metal that should be in great, great demand over the next 20 years as we decarbonize, uh, uh, as we use base power over the intercombustion engine uh, and over hydrocarbons. But you know, it 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 is acting like we are going to have uh, a really deep global recession, and I think it also reflects just how screwed China is from both their their massive real estate overbuilding issue. They're trying to stimulate it, but you're not going to change sentiment in people who have been speculating on housing for 30 years and are now losing their money. You can you can lower rates and you can stimulate, but it isn't going to change sentiment in China. So. I, I think that uh, that's a, that, that you have the the Russia and China issues that only accelerate deglobalization de and some of those big long-term structural inflationary issues that we talk about. On the political side in the U.S., the fact that Manchin actually pulled the plug on anything on the on the kind of the good parts of, of reconciliation, or at least some of the most important parts of reconciliation, seems to make it more likely that you could get a very small bill done on the reconciliation side. And it may even make it more likely that McConnell will relent and allow the chip bill to pass. I mean, the chip bill really is a national security issue. If the Defense Department needs semiconductors that are coming from a Taiwan that's threatened by China, that's a national security problem. And look, there's a. I, I'm not a huge fan of, of corporate subsidies overall, but if Gelsinger at Intel is telling you, look, we're not building this fab in Ohio if we don't get some subsidies. And if a Taiwanese fabs are subsidized 30 and 50% and the same in China and the same in Japan, we have to have subsidies to be globally competitive. So I guess I've, I've changed my tune a little bit thinking that you could actually get something done uh, in an election year um, where you know it, it actually takes bipartisan support as impossible as anything bipartisan looks nowadays yeah, yeah. i mean I, I think what's going to happen obviously is biden's talking about putting an ex executive order on green tech calling that a win um so the budget reconciliation might be just medical pricing and then um some tax stuff um yeah i don't think you'll get i mean you know you're not going to get the global minimum tax mansion no. has pulled the plug on that. Why wouldn't you want to enforce corporation, multinational corporations actually paying 15% uh, for God's sakes. Um, it just, you know, it, it, it just can, it continues to get more bifurcated, more sclerotic. Uh, and we have a political system that is really truly incapable of taking care of the core function that government needs to take care of. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of semiconductors, I was reading this foreign policy article that as much advantages as China has in a variety of tech, 5G, green, um, stuff that we wouldn't have thought 20 years ago, they are currently short 1.7 million algo engineers, 
and 300,000 semiconductor specialists. Um, so, you know, that'd be a good opportunity to convince people to move. Uh, what with, you know, conflict in in Russia and Ukraine and then maybe impeding conflict in Taiwan uh, to kind of shore up that gap. And that's part of it, obviously. And the other part is just huge investment in those spaces and subsidies in those spaces. And if we start building fabs in Ohio, we've got the same issue. We've got to get those engineers. Right. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're the same number of H-1B visas now as there were in the early 90s. If you are coming from India and you're a skilled professional, you're an engineer coming from in India, it takes you between seven and nine years to get a visa. I mean, again, we can't do the basic things that we need as a government to bring in the talent that we need to be globally competitive. And, you know, it, it goes back to this core issue of a global skills gap and a global worker shortage. China is shrinking. They're not just workforce, but the whole country as a population is shrinking. Europe is shrinking. The United States workforce is flat and going to shrink. Like we need more workers and we need more skilled workers uh, coming to this country. And uh, frankly, it's hard to see it happening. Yeah. I mean, like t t more to your point, I think we just cut a lot of those requirements for nurses. So if we do it for nurses, then what's the argument to we have a massive tech shortage? And this is also um, nurses, obviously the fabric of healthcare, but semiconductors, people just as important for development and, and national security as well. Yeah, um, just, so you think you could fast track some of that? Yeah, it's just super hard politically, though, mm -hmm. especially on the Republican side to look, quote unquote, soft on immigration. Mm -hmm. No, it's definitely of all the things that can't be moved right now. I think that's probably top of the list. Right. But yeah. yeah. All right. Sounds good. Um, well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Thanks for all the likes and subscribes. Be back at it next week uh, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.